Well, great, good morning to you all uh, in person and those online as well. Welcome as we continue in our great conversions. Uh, I want to start by asking, what do, you, what do you think people reckon is the most offensive thing that the Bible has to say? What, what are they most offended by? Uh, I don't know what answer you'd come up with in your own mind. Uh, today is the final day in Sydney's World Pride Month and there are certainly many of those celebrating who take extreme exception to what God has to say in the Bible about human sexuality that it calls, well they call it liberation, God calls a terrible slavery. But that's a very modern, very recent offence. Uh, for a lot longer people have been offended by the Bible's exclusive claims that Jesus is the only way of salvation. They seem to think that that's very narrow and it's proud, it's arrogant to claim that yours is the only way but they misunderstand it's got nothing to do with pride. It's got to do with who Jesus is, God become man to save us. Uh, and if that's right, if that's who he is then you've got to come to terms with him and it is only a narrow way as he says. But there's something that the Bible says that's been condemned and disbelieved and argued against and hated more than anything else that's been offensive right throughout history and still today both within the church and without it's the reason that so many cults and sects exist because they cannot believe that it's true it's the reason that wars erupted throughout europe in the 1500s and 1600s and thousands if not millions of people were killed it's why people were burnt at the stake. It's the reason why Christianity stands apart from every man-made religion and condemns them as false. It's something the scriptures declare is true over and over again. And it's the scandal of God's grace. Here it is in its simplest form in Romans chapter 4 verse 5. God justifies the ungodly. Well, here it is in context, I think. That to the one who does not work but believes on him, that's God, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. God justifies the ungodly, not the godly. That's what it's saying. It's not the good, the moral, the upright who are saved by their own righteousness. It's evil people that God justifies. He declares them not guilty. That's what that means when they trust him that's the scandal of god's grace that's the scandal of the gospel that he would take wretched people who have no hope of salvation and gift them life and pardon that's that's what grace is it's unmerited favor it's a gift not deserved the glory of the gospel of jesus christ is not that god gives salvation to people who earn it or to people who achieve it or to people who are good enough or righteous enough or holy enough or religious enough but he gives salvation to the ungodly to the unholy and the unrighteous who will believe in christ come to an end of their efforts and repent that's the scandal of grace which offends everyone and every system of works-based righteousness in existence it's the difference between the true gospel and all other religions because all of them teach in one way or another that you can earn your way to God. 
be it Islam, Hinduism, Roman Catholicism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, the Church of Wells, uh, all the weird cults that you've never even heard of that exist in this world. Uh, That's what they teach. It's a scandal to the average Australian because the average Australian just thinks that we're all right by nature and God would be lucky to have us in heaven, wouldn't he? We deserve it. But God says no one will ever be justified by their own work such that even the most wicked of people can be saved by receiving God's grace. And we're going to see just how true and how scandalous God's grace is as he saves, he justifies, he forgives and accepts someone who truly has to be one of the most wicked and repulsive people who has ever lived on this planet. Uh, I, I would say he's the epitome of evil. That, that I, don't, I can't think of anyone worse who's described in human history. You know, some would say that Alistair Crowley holds that title of the epitome of evil, the head of the satanic church who's on the cover of the, uh, of the Beatles albums. Um, that, uh, he was certainly a bad guy. He was in horrible stuff. Um, uh, some might say, though, that that title goes to Ted Bundy or to Jeffrey Dahmer, you know, those deranged serial killers who were cannibal, like just evil. Some might give that title to Hitler, you know, with his insanity and destruction. But this guy takes the cake. His name is Manasseh. And he was the king of God's people in Judah around 2,700 years ago, so about 650, 700 years before Christ. And his wickedness was staggering. And if there was anyone who was undeserving of anything from God, it was him. Now, we just heard uh, an overview of his life read to us in 2 Kings 21. Uh, you might want to pop that open. We're going to be uh, spending uh, our time in, in 2 Kings. Uh, in verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name, here's the good thing about him, was Hepzibah. Uh, it means she was delightful. That's what her name means. There you go. Uh, Dad obviously thought so. Anyway, he, uh, he was the son of the previous king, Hezekiah, who was a very godly individual. He was one of the few really good kings. Uh, Hezekiah had loved God and loved his ways and during his 29-year reign, he had destroyed the idols that had been popping up all over the land for centuries. And he, he even destroyed the bronze statue of the snake that Moses had built, you remember, to, to save them in the desert when they were getting bitten by snakes and dying. Uh, God ordered this thing, be said, but it turned into an idol. And so he said, well, that, we can't have an idol, so it's got to be destroyed. Uh, he had purified the temple he reinstated the celebration of the Passover that had long been forgotten. In fact, he named his son Manasseh, which means forgotten, right? Because of the way Israel had forgotten. And little Manasseh, his son, had wonderful opportunity to see what a life lived for God looks like. And even more remarkably, little Manasseh had also seen firsthand the incredible provision of God. When he was five years old, the Assyrians had come with the biggest army ever gathered. They had wiped out the Middle East and gone into the subcontinent the other way too. But they'd come down through the Middle East. They had destroyed or enslaved everyone. 
They had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and the only thing left was Jerusalem. And they had that under siege with 185,000 strong army. And, And in that moment, with this only place in the whole world left unconquered, Hezekiah had nothing to offer. (laughs) And so he got down on his knees and he prayed for God to act. And that night, uh, the angel of death came from heaven and slew all 185,000 of the invading army. There were dead bodies strewn all around. There's a great poem by uh, George Gordon Lord Byron uh, on um, Sennacherib's army and the death. Um, so Manasseh had been raised by a godly man. He'd seen God act in incredible ways in his childhood. But what does verse 2 say about him? He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, imitating the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. And as the chapter goes on, we find out just how depraved this monster was that he was far worse than any of his predecessors. And they were bad. I mean, you, you see how the Lord, if you read through 1 and 2 Kings, right, there's just this litany of evil, but he takes the cake. Um, and far worse even than any of the surrounding nations, uh, what they were getting up to, and even worse than the nations who God had destroyed in the land of Canaan. He took all of their practices and he brought them together and then he decided to amp them all up to 11, all right, whatever they did, he did more of. He topped it in some way. And that's what the chapter really goes on to show, how he did that. In verse 3, we're told he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had destroyed and re-established the altars for Baal. He made an Asherah, as King Ahab of Israel had done. He also bowed down in worship to all the stars in the sky and served them. It wasn't that he was ignorant of God or unaware of what he was doing. This was a deliberate act to undo everything his godly father had done and to bring the nation back into depravity. In a way, he's like the missionary kid or the pastor's kid who goes off the rails. When they go off the rails, they really go off the rails. Uh, Some of you might remember seeing that happen even in this very church in past years hopefully you won't see it in the future but anyway uh, when pastors kids go they are anyway um it's like the amish kids who when they turn 18 they're allowed to go for a year uh out into the world and experience it and and once the, the idea is they'll see the horrors of it and come back most of them get so crazed and hopped up on drugs and alcohol and sex They want nothing to do with their parents and never return. No one is so anti-faith as the person who grew up with it and walks away. And in Manasseh's case, it didn't matter what he worshipped as long as it wasn't his father's God, the God of Israel. And so you read through and it's just this list of things that you you might not have thought too deeply about, but but it's, it's a real strange mix. There's Baal worship. Baal was the Canaanite god of storms, the god of thunder and lightning. He was the god of rain. So if it didn't rain, it meant that Baal was angry. And if it didn't rain, what might start out as a question of fertility turned into a question of survival. 
Uh, and Baal worship involved all kinds of magic and rituals and involved cutting and slicing yourself and in particular involved sacred prostitution. Right? He said that Baal worship was at brothels, religious brothels all around the place where you could sleep with men and women. Right? It was homosexual and heterosexual. Like it was just... It was the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras. Both, and it was all of it was to arouse Baal to bring the rain. Manasseh worshipped Baal. But he also built an Asherah. He worshipped Asherah, who was a fertility goddess of Canaan, who was worshipped in much the same ways with orgies, who one of his predecessors, Ahab, was being told, had worshipped and had been condemned for. He also worshipped the sun, the moon, the stars and planets. So he was into astrology and divination, uh, things that God's law condemns as an abomination. So it didn't matter what was on offer. If Freemasonry had been, he would have had that. If it, you know, he, he just would have brought it all in. He'd have them all. He was syncretistic. And he just blended it all together in this one seething, ugly, horrible mass. And in a grand act of defiance to Yahweh, the God of Israel, he placed altars to all these gods and goddesses all over Jerusalem, up and down the streets, and even in the temple that was the centre of worship of Yahweh in, for Judaism. You can see that in verse 5. He built altars to the stars in the sky in both the courtyards of the Lord's temples. Right? He's into nature worship there. Or again, verse 7, Manasseh set up the carved image of Asherah that he made. I mean, this was personal devotion. Right? He, he didn't pay some artisan to make this Asherah pole. He made it himself. And what did he do with it? He placed it right in the centre of the temple that the Lord has spoken about to David and his son Solomon. I will establish my name forever in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. And he wasn't misguided. Nebuchadnezzar, we saw last week, he was misguided. He'd grown up with the false gods. But this was a deliberate act of defiance. If it wasn't bad enough already, it gets worse. Verse 6, he sacrificed his son in the fire. That is, he, this king murdered his own son as an act of worship. Uh, sacrificing your own children is part of the practice of the worship of Moloch. Uh, Moloch was the Mesopotamian god of the underworld who required human blood. Uh, why would people sacrifice their own children to Moloch? Because that was the ultimate sacrifice, the, the ultimate proof of devotion. You were really putting your future in Moloch's hands because you raised sons to take care of you in your old age. You were raising a son to take over the estate to perpetuate the family, to, to perpetuate the valuable treasures that the family possessed. And you, you were so devoted to this evil God that you would say, I abandon everything. The greatest sacrifice I can make to you is to incinerate my son. So I'm telling you, I honour you to the degree I abandon all my security for my, for my future in this world. And Manasseh went for it by sacrificing the future king of Israel. But to cap it all off, look at verse 16. Manasseh also shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem with it from one end to another. 
I don't know if you could imagine that, the streets literally running with blood from one end to the other, from Campbelltown to Liverpool. Kind of whether the bodies are just lying there in the streets, just gore everywhere. Who was he slaughtering? Well, prophets who confronted him. We read about that elsewhere. Godly people, any, anyone who stood in his way. There was the blood of all the children who'd been murdered and sacrificed. He was the worst. And it wasn't just that he was personally a bad sex-crazed psychopath who would sacrifice his own kids. He persuaded the whole nation to join him in the same depravity. And so verse 9, Manasseh caused them to stray so that they did worse evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. If there was anyone fit for hell, it was Manasseh, the epitome of evil. In fact, so great was the evil he led the nation into that later on when there's another good king, Josiah, who, who finds the book of law and he's totally transformed as he reads God's ways and says, we're not doing that, we're, we're in trouble. He tries to reverse the damage and the idolatry. God says, it's too late for Judah. If you just turn over the page to chapter 23... You'll see it in verse 26. You got it there? 2 Kings 23, verse 26. In spite of all of Josiah's reforms, the Lord did not turn from the fury of his intense burning anger which burned against Judah because of all the affronts with which Manasseh had angered him. For the Lord had said, I will also remove Judah from my presence just as I removed Israel. Or in chapter 24, the hammer falls the Babylonians came and wiped them from the face of the planet. The comment in verse 3 in chapter 24, Indeed, this happened to Judah at the Lord's command to remove them from his presence. It was because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all he had done, and also because of all the innocent blood he had shed. He had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. Now, you might be a little bit confused at this point. Because haven't we been saying we're talking about great conversions? The end of Manasseh's life, back in chapter 21, he died. And where's this scandal of grace that's so offensive to the world? There doesn't seem to be anything in 2 Kings about that. He was not willing to forgive. Well, come a few pages forward again to the book of 2 Chronicles and chapter 23. I don't know if you've ever tried to read through the Bible you know, from front to back. It's, most people stop about Leviticus. But those who really proceed get to Kings and then they turn the page to 1 Chronicles and 1 and 2 Chronicles are really like a video replay of 1 and 2 Kings except with a whole lot of genealogies thrown in as well. So most people just go, well, whatever, just skip them right, and go to the next thing. Uh, but but it's really it's like watching cricket. Well, you might think that's tedious. But... Uh, but you get the action replays of all the events and, and suddenly they show you from square leg what was you know, shown from stump cam a minute ago and you see something new, something completely different, the new angle, a new perspective, there's surprises. And I think there's none, no bigger surprise than what happened to Manasseh. And so 2 Chronicles 33 verse 10. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people but they paid no attention. That's not a surprise. 
Therefore, the Lord brought the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria against them, and they captured Manasseh with hooks, bound him with bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. That is, during his lifetime, he was humiliated. He was, they had put hooks through his skin, right? Kind of like some of the extremes of what's happening in town. He was chained, he was marched off on a four-month walk to Babylon in utter humiliation, feeding irons, and you think, well, he deserved that, didn't he? But look at verse 12. When he was in distress... He sought the favour of the Lord his God and earnestly humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. He prayed to him and the Lord was receptive to his prayer. He granted his request and brought him back to Jerusalem to his kingdom. So Manasseh came to know that the Lord is God. And you think, come on, (laughs) after all of that, after all those years of idolatry, the depravity, the, the years of vileness and blood, that he knew what he was doing. Sacrificing his son to the fire, murdering the prophets that God had sent. He has one moment where he remembers God and thinks to pray for help and God's receptive to it. <laughs> How can that be? How is that fair? How does that bring comfort to all of the prophets' families who are dead? How can it make up for what he's done? And that's the point. Nothing can make up for it. You cannot make up for your sin. I can't, and you can't. No one can. It's just going to be up to God to have mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and to stretch out his hand in grace and rescue, which, for his own reasons, God did for Manasseh. It was grace and grace alone that saved him and it overwhelmed him He never forgot God again. And you you can see how it changed him. The changes didn't save him, but God saved him and he was changed. Verse 15, he removed the foreign gods and the idol from the Lord's temple, along with all the altars he built on the mountain of the Lord's temple and in Jerusalem. He threw them outside the city. He built the altar of the Lord and offered fellowship and thanksgiving sacrifices on it. Then he told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. I mean, here is a man... uh, You cannot get a bigger about face, can you? He's utterly transformed by God's saving grace. Privately, publicly, he's now a worshipper of God. It's genuine and and he sets out to destroy all of the evil creations that he personally had ordered set up. And in one sense, this is a picture of repentance. Look how the section finishes in verse 18. The rest of the events of Manasseh's reign, along with his prayer to God, I love that. God was now his God. And the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, the ones he had murdered, which means there were people all along talking to him, calling him to repentance, pointing them back to God, 
Um, he'd ignored them all. All of it is written in the events of Israel's kings. His prayer and how God was receptive to his prayer. And all his sin and unfaithfulness in the sites where he built the high places and set up Asherah poles and carved images before he humbled himself. They're written in the events of Hosea. Manasseh rested with his ancestors. Manasseh was, was the worst of the worst. He was the epitome of evil, but God humbled him and gave him grace and he came to believe. You're going to see Manasseh in heaven. Now, here's the thing. Does that trouble you? It's a real problem, isn't it? It's certainly a problem to the Jews. The rabbis have commentaries going back centuries and they have a hard time dealing with 2 Chronicles and Manasseh uh, because it's clear in Scripture that he's restored to the kingdom. He came back and ruled to the end of his life. And so they acknowledge, well, he was restored to his kingdom because of some sort of repentance. But, but one of the comments of the rabbis is, but it was superficial repentance it could only get him back the temporal part of his kingdom, that is, the, the, this world part of his kingdom. And it goes on to say definitively, he is not a part of the kingdom of heaven. He forfeited that by his life. Why is it that the rabbis cannot just accept that God saved Manasseh eternally? Why do they find it necessary to post him as a hypocrite who is not in the kingdom of heaven? Because if your system is salvation by works, Manasseh undermines the whole thing. If you can be this bad, this wretched, yet be forgiven and end up in heaven, the whole, the whole system collapses around you. The same goes for Nebuchadnezzar last week, the most violent oppressor of Israel in history, far worse than Hitler. Nebuchadnezzar only left 7,000 Jews alive in the whole world. Right? Hitler couldn't do that. Um, and yet the, the Bible says Nebuchadnezzar was humbled, forgiven, saved, changed by the grace of God into a worshipper of the true and living. You'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. You can't take the two worst people who've ever lived, Nebuchadnezzar and Manasseh, and put them in heaven without the entire system of workspace righteousness crashing down. There is no grace in Judaism. But there is grace with God. It's utterly staggering. And, and, and I think there are so many incredible lessons to learn from what happened here. Let me just pick out a few. The first thing is it teaches us a huge lesson about God, about what God's like. It, it does tell us that God hates human sin. He detests it. Idolatry is an abomination to him. He's not mucking around. If you start mucking around with the things he hates, He's not going to muck around with you. And because of the sin of Manasseh, which he led the people into, he was not going to relent from destroying Judah. Sinners deserve hell. But at the same time, we're also shown the incredible truth that Ezekiel 18 speaks about, that God desires not the death of a sinner, but that they should come to repent. How can both those things be true at once? That God hates evil, is going to punish and send you to hell, um, but... He also loves you and wants to save you <laughs> and lead you to... How can they be true at once? Sin is an abomination. 
but he's also merciful and pardons sinners, even the most vile like Manasseh. It's the tension of the Old Testament which really isn't answered until Jesus goes to the cross because there Jesus pays for sin. Manasseh sacrificed his son to the fire in a completely vain and futile attempt to prove to Moloch his own devotion that he would give up everything. But the real God, our maker, our king, our saviour, sacrificed his son to save us, right? It was the other way around. Sin just can't be brushed away. It has to be paid for, right? It has to be a reckoning. And on the cross, God poured out his wrath on his son for human sin. And Jesus drank the wine of God's wrath for us right down to the dregs. And because of that, God now extends his hand in mercy to anyone who will call out to him and receive it. At the cross, perfect mercy and perfect justice meet, which is why salvation is all of him and none of us. And all we can do is humbly receive the benefits. Second, Manasseh's story teaches us about one of the means that God sometimes uses to bring people to himself. I mean, God gave him a father who raised him to love God, but he spat in his face. God sent the prophets to speak to Manasseh, but he wouldn't listen to them. Instead, he had them killed. He had the word of God and he rejected it. What a foolish thing to do. So how did God get his attention? He had the same Assyrian army come again that Hezekiah had prayed to God about for mercy and the angel of death had put them to death, the same army came back and God let them win. And they took Manasseh away. They had him bound, hooked and chained in humiliation. And and that's what God used to save him. It was in the depths of despair and shame and suffering that he cried out to the God who deep down he knew was real and who he actively shunned and renounced. God is not beyond using extreme measures to get your attention. (laughs) Through sickness, through tragedy, through failure, sometimes God has to take everything away that people pride themselves on, take everything away that they glory in, which really should be their shame, to show them where life and hope and joy and salvation and peace are really found. And I want to say to you today, if you don't have this living relationship with God that Manasseh came to have, save yourself a whole lot of pain and time and just believe what God says before he has to lead you down the same path of humiliation. If you've heard God's gospel... Someone shared it with you. You've seen a John 3.16 t-shirt in the crowds at the footy show and you've wondered what that's about. Go look it up. You had a scripture lesson. Don't ignore the prophets like Manasseh did. Third, as we learned last week, Manasseh's life teaches us that God can save anyone he chooses to save. No one is so vile, so wicked, so far gone, so hardened in sin, so caught up in lies of false religion or so anti-God that he cannot save them. 
That's great news, isn't it, if you struggle with guilt from the past, from your present. Right? And it's great news if you're despairing over someone, perhaps a child who's walked away from God like Manasseh did as a young man. It's great news for our city that's indulging in Baal worship right now with its orgies and horrendous evil, the abominations that are going on in this city. It's good news. God may have to do something drastic, but do not give up in despair. God is omnipotent and his grace is sufficient. Keep praying, keep preaching the gospel, even if you're killed for it. Fourth lesson Manasseh teaches us is that there are long-term consequences to our sin that being saved and forgiven doesn't just wipe out. It's not as if Manasseh's pardon meant that somehow God activated a Harry Potter time-turner and he could go back and it's as if it never happened. Right? Some people talk about justification, just as if I'd never sinned. Well, God might not treat you for that as if you'd ever sinned, right? He's forgiven, wiped you out. But it's not that the consequences are wiped out at all. Manasseh spent years dealing with the outfall of the damage he had done. And even after all he'd done he, uh, to get the people that he'd led astray straight, their hearts were still with their idols that he'd set up. And people suffered and Ammon, Manasseh's son, restored the images that Manasseh tore down and threw out the city. He rebuilt them and put them straight back and began the whole detestable cycle again and God would still destroy Judah because of Manasseh's sin. Which means that as we go about sharing the gospel of grace and forgiveness with people, right, which is what we're on about, we're hungry for God's heart. We... And people come to receive God's grace, which they do, because God's saving people all the time. There'll be plenty of mess still to clean up. There'll be old habits that'll be hard to kill. There'll be damage from the past sin that will haunt them. And it's going to take plenty of love and patience and commitment to disciple those who come to Christ. The scars may still show, but they'll become a greater testimony to the greater grace of God. Which brings us to the final lesson about the scandal of grace. If you take nothing else away from the story of Manasseh, take this. Salvation is all of grace. And it is scandalous. God justifies the ungodly. That's not saying that he you know, just forgives everyone because Jesus has done his work and so everyone's coming to heaven. No. That's, that's not the case, right? He had to turn and put his life in God's hands. God justifies the ungodly, the one who has faith in him. As our second reading says, by nature we're dead in sins and transgressions. Dead people have nothing to offer God. They've got nothing to offer anyone. They can't do anything. But praise be to God for his incredible mercy and grace. For you are saved by grace through faith. This not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Manasseh had absolutely nothing to boast of, did he? He simply cried out 
to the God of his Father, the true and living God, and he received a salvation he patently did not deserve. Have you come to an end of your efforts and trusted solely in the grace of God alone to save you? Can you honestly say with Augustus Toplady, who wrote Rock of Ages, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Stained by sin to you I cry, wash me saviour or I die. There is no hope other than Jesus Christ and the grace of God that he's offering through his sacrifice for us. Father, these are weighty matters and we're astonished by your grace. In fact, some of us might even be scandalised by it. But thank you that this is your nature and you have given your son to die in our place that we can receive what you offer freely. We can't earn it. And we pray, please, that you'll take away every pretension and pride in our hearts that might still remain that thinks we deserve what you offer. Help us to know that it's only by grace that we live. It's only by grace that we go forward. It's only by grace that we have any hope in the future, in anything. Thank you for your mercy. Amen.